0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Pay no attention to the man that you hear. The voice of God is it were, at the beginning of the program. The text line is not operative. So do not text us your question to any number. <laughs> at this point, we hope to have the re- the triumphant return of texting soon, but uh, as we sit here at this moment, uh, it is not available. There, now that we've taken care of that housekeeping, welcome to EWTN's Open Line, another great week of uh, coverage for you. Father John Tregilio, not in the house today, but never fear, we have a more than adequate replacement for Father Tregilio today. And we will get to that. Those of you who are watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, get a sneak peek to who that is. But the rest of you will have to wait. And maybe you should be watching on YouTube or Facebook Live. But actually, I'd rather have you listening to your local Catholic radio station. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. That's how you can, you can be part of the program. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five. 271 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So, if you're uh, watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, not John, Father John Trigilio, but the one and only Dr. David Anders, doubling up. Uh, we we have the upbeat music for open line to keep you awake after the <laughs> the dulcet <laughs> piano tones have called to communion. <laughs>
2: Jack, how are you today?
1: I'm terrific, thanks. Well, you know,
2: I've I've been told by more than one person that they use Call to Communion to go to sleep to at <laughs> night, so that does have a soporific effect.
1: It's just the it's just the music. It has nothing to do with you at all. I've um, got an email here from Mike, and he says, "I'm about to be confirmed at Easter. What's your advice for someone to receive the Eucharist for the first time?"
2: Um, so if you're going to be confirmed, I'm going to go out on a limb here and presume that you're in RCIA. And if you are an RCA, that is what RCA is for. And so you know, there's more than just book learning involved. You you have a liturgical preparation that involves, you know, a real examination of conscience and an attempt to reform your life. And and that that's the that's the whole business right here. I mean, baptism is meant to be uh, a radical break with your old way of life and an embrace of the new man in Jesus. Now, if you're already a baptized person. Um, you know, hopefully, you don't have mortal sin. You don't. You're not worried about that. Maybe you do. I don't know. I'm not presuming. Uh, but you're already a member of Christ's body. But you're coming into a into a, a fuller union with that body of Christ. A full embrace of what it means to be Catholic, to follow Jesus in the Catholic Church. And so, you know, having the proper disposition is primarily a matter of penance, faith, and charity. And so, you go to confession and make a very good examination of conscience. You know, you. There is something called a general confession, and that's that's when you really go over your whole life and try to sh- clean up everything that needs to be cleaned up. Give it some time, um, you know. Spend a couple days, even uh, thinking through what from your past life you need to you need to bring to the Lord in confessional, Make a maybe make a special appointment for that so you can take a little extra time. Make a really good confession, um, and then and then go to that confirmation uh, in a in a pious frame of mind, having made your prayers and maybe set aside some time for contemplation and meditation and might be a good idea to fast from things that distract you from media from television or whatever it is in your life that might take you out of a, the right frame of mind and really try to make it a, a, a just a pivotal moment in your journey
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number that is a free telephone call anywhere in north america 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Josh wants to know how does the substance of the bread change before consecration to after.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Wish I could tell you the answer to it. <laughs> what I can tell you is that the substance and not the accidents uh, change from being the substance of bread and wine to the substance of Christ's body and blood. How that takes place is more than any of us know. We know that it takes place. We don't know the how. Uh, Now, you know, we know some things that don't happen, and uh, I think it's important to specify. So we talk about the substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We don't talk about the physical presence. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, Jesus is physically present, but the language is not precise. Because, see, Jack Williams is physically present to me, in that I have all of Jack and all of his properties. I have his height, his width, and his girth. Everything else about Jack, you know, that, that, I mean, if I threw a basketball at him, he could catch it, you know, he's right there. And obviously Jesus is not present in that way, but he's present substantially, right? But in a way where he doesn't have any of those properties of physical presence, like quantity or extent or, you know, coloration, none of that stuff is there. That's obviously a very mysterious mode of presence, very mysterious indeed. And something that, uh, you know, that a physicist or a biologist could never have anticipated. We wouldn't know it, but that God had revealed it. And, uh, you know, St. Thomas's beautiful hymn, Adorate, uh, Adorate, ah, I'm going, my mind's going blank and my tongue's getting tied. Adorate Devote, right? I adore, devoutly I adore thee, says uh, uh, basically, you know, my eyes are deceived, my, my, my tastes are deceived, my, my sense organs are deceived, except for my ears. My, it's by hearing the Word of God only that I have knowledge of this transcendent reality.
1: Got a great question here for a recovering proselytizer like yourself. Okay. Andy says, How can I evangelize a Christian neighbor of mine without pushing her away or ruining the friendship?
2: Okay, that's a great question, and I really appreciate it. First of all, recognize that it is not you who will save this person and get them to heaven. It is God. Um, uh, also recognize that there is zero timeline that you should specify for this individual's conversion. right? So you 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 have to take the long view and trust that that God will get the business done in God's timing. Um, third, you you know, evangelization is not magic. And what I mean by that is there was a time in my life when I thought the most important thing was to get the message out, articulate what I thought of as the gospel, and then, you know, even if i at risk of offense, and I'd let God do the rest. And I think that's the wrong way to look at it, all right? That, that God works in and through our rationality and our freedom and our conscience. And so you have to take those things into consideration in the other person to respect their dignity. So if, if they don't want to hear what you have to say, you don't shove it down their throat, right? You, you have to have a willing participant, and, and faith has to be an uncoerced, free act of the will— done in conscience. And so my goal is not to manipulate somebody, um, but to love them, to befriend them, to manifest the truth in any way possible in a way that can advance them in the life of virtue and acknowledge the principle of gradualism. And what that means is that you don't have to seal the deal. If you make even incremental steps to helping this individual— um, in any area of their moral or spiritual life, then, then that's good. And, and it maybe the most effective way you can do that is simply by loving them and being present to them and listening and accompanying them. And then when a relationship of trust is built and your Catholic faith is manifest, then this person may seal, feel free to ask you questions about it and say, well, you know, tell me the reason for the hope that is in you. And that's what St. Peter says we're to be ready to do. Not hey, let me let me beat you down with a catechism and force on you the reasons for the hope that was in me, but be ready to give an answer that, and and you've built that relationship of trust so that an answer can not only be forthcoming but can actually be received profitably.
1: Again, our toll free telephone numbers. I can't speak either. You you you're rubbing off on. It's me. rubbing off on right you. Although I was, I'm having trouble with. With English, not Latin. (laughs) 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address, again, is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to George in Illinois, Cecil in California, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. Pick up the phone and give us a call. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Dr. David Anders sitting in for Father John Tregilio.
0: Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: You know, you never have to be without EWTN. You can actually carry it with you everywhere when you download the free EWTN app. You can enjoy EWTN's live television and radio streams, audio and video on demand, EWTN news, program schedules, prayers, devotionals, just about everything we have to offer here at EWTN. Just go to... EWTNapps.com, and download the EWTN app today. It is free. 833-288-EWTN. That phone call, free. 833-288-3986. First up today is George, a first-time caller in Rockford, Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. George, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, George, are you there? I'm here. Yeah, go waiting. right ahead.
3: Okay. Um, good afternoon, Doctor. This is George Ferrari. I'm calling from Rockford, Illinois. My prayer is, my question is regarding prayers. I've been praying the same format for many, many, many years, and by the time I start and finish between prayers, mass, and rosary, it takes about two, two and a half hours. Could I change the format? Could I get into a different group of prayers without uh, yeah. uh, getting into uh, into trouble with the upstairs?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, I'm going to answer this question. And first of all, let me tell you something, George. Uh, you have you have already won my admiration because what you just told me is that you have a years long habit of spending up to two and a half hours a day in prayer, and and so. You are just light years ahead of a lot of people in their prayer lives. I mean, this is this is really something—I mean, I don't want you to take pride. I don't want you to be spiritually pride, but, like, I really commend you for your dedication to the life of prayer. I mean, this is just really wonderful. And so, you know, the, the short answer to your question is, of course, of course, and any spiritual director is going to tell you, that we go through seasons in our life of prayer. And there are, there are prayers that we might pray at one stage of our spiritual journey that are very important for us to pray, but that we have to put aside, actually, as we move deeper into the spiritual life. Um, now, here's what I can't do. I can't diagnose your spiritual condition over the, over the telephone. And so this kind of question is best given to a spiritual director who knows you and knows your interior life. Now, my guess is, from your question, you probably don't have one. And, you know, a lot of times priests are kind of busy, and maybe they don't want to take up the the job. So here's, really, honestly, for someone with the level of commitment that you have, here's what I would recommend. You're in Rockford, Illinois. I don't know, but I feel almost certain that someplace within driving distance of you, you're going to find some kind of convent or monastery where there are Catholic contemplatives monks or nuns that have given their lives to the life of prayer. Very often, Catholic religious who are in monasteries like this will serve as spiritual directors for the laity. And what I strongly recommend you do is that you seek out one of these communities. Uh, maybe you find, a you know, for example, a, a Benedictine or a Trappist monastery near you, and you go out there and you meet some of the monks and you say, "I'm you know, I'm, I've been spending two and a half hours a day in prayer for the last you know, however many years. And I've been told that that it's time for me to get a spiritual director. I'm serious about the life of prayer. You know, I'm not this is I'm not new to this, but you know, given the nature of your question, I need to be in a serious relationship of spiritual direction with someone who can tell me what's next in my life of prayer. Yes, of course you can change your prayer routine, but with your level of commitment, I think rather than just you know tossing it to 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 chance or to randomness you need the counsel of a of an experienced uh director who can tell you here's what to do with all of that commitment that you have here's the best next step for you don't don't ask me because i don't i don't know your situation i don't know your interior life get to know a spiritual director who can help you
1: 833 288 EWTN is our toll free number 833 288 3986 Cecil is in Marietta, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Cecil, you're on with Dr. Andrews.
4: Yes, Dr. Andrews. I uh, had a family member come and look at my house, and she saw two statues. One was a bust of George Washington, who, for me, is a paragon of self-discipline and self-restraint and a founding father. And I also... She saw... Uh, The three muses, which are fashioned after Renaissance sculptures, uh, they're in the nude. Uh, So anyway, he said, uh, what are you as a Catholic having uh, George Washington, who was a mason? Why do you have him in your home? And secondly, why do you have these naked goddesses in your home? And so I said to her, well... I've been to the Vatican, and uh, they have artwork like this. And then, uh, and I then I said to her, "You know, you're a convert Catholicism like I am. You're sounding more like a fundamentalist Baptist." <laughs> so, <laughs> so Dr. Andrews, I just thought I wanted to run it by you because I see these these, ideas, these items as reminding me of noble character and beauty. I don't see them as not uh, pornographic or disrespectful to god or or even to the catholic church
2: well sure and i appreciate the question and i think you've already put your finger on the on the the nub of the issue here um so you know i i seriously doubt from what you've told me that your statue of george washington is strongly tempting you to deism or to masonry doesn't sound like that's what is evoked in you instead you're looking at his at his his natural virtues and the contribution to civic life and with the muses, it doesn't sound like these are tempting you particularly to lust. And those would be the things to look out for, you know? So, I mean, I think what St. Paul would say, this is more or less what he says in 1 Corinthians, is if I, you know, if my statue of a Freemason or, or my statue of the muses leads me to idolatry or lust, then then I need to get that statue out of my house. But if it doesn't do that, if it has some other, evokes some other response in me, then that, you know, that that's within your prudent judgment and discernment, to, uh, to have that freedom. And the, the very fact of the matter is, as you've already stated, that the, the Holy See itself possesses this treasury of Renaissance artwork that uh, you know has pagan themes and nude figures and, and the like. Um, there are some famous paintings of St. Thomas Aquinas um, that go under the title The Triumph of St. Thomas. There's one of them by Lippo Memmi, who's a 14th century painter, that depicts St. Thomas flanked by Plato and Aristotle, and he's sort of... Um, standing on top of Averroes and the reason that Thomas is pictured there with those pagan thinkers is that he complimented them and exceeded them but he in no way repudiated them as thinkers I mean, he borrowed from them he dialogued with them at times he disagreed with them but he was deeply dependent upon them and he admired them and and so does the catholic tradition you know that's why we have uh, you know we have Pagan columns in our architecture. You go find Corinthian columns or Doric columns or whatnot. And the Catholic response has always been to take what's beautiful and good in the world and to baptize it, uh, not to repudiate the world or culture, but to transform it. And uh, and so, you know, he wasn't a Catholic, but I, I love the statement from C.S. Lewis who said that Christianity writes in capital letters what nature wrote, wrote in cribbed hand, that, you know, our relationship of the faith to the world is not one of just complete rejection, but of sanctification.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Dorothy, a first-time caller in Springfield, Missouri, listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Dorothy, you're on with Dr. David Anders.
3: Thank you for taking my call. The question that I have is a friend of mine went through RCIA and went to confession with a priest and wanted to confess sins prior to them become Catholic. They were told that prior to being Catholic they had no full awareness of the nature of the sin, therefore they did not need to confess their sins.
4: Is that correct?
3: That's that not is what the, I've
2: been t- That is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. All right. And and if a person comes to the confessional and wishes to make confession of their known mortal sins from their past life, then the the it is, it is just unconscionable that a priest would tell them, I reject your act of contrition and tell you that you need not bring this to confession. That, that is just a grossly irresponsible thing for a priest to do, because the priest can't possibly form that judgment. And if the penitent is bringing this thing as confessional matter, then it's evidence that the penitent has consciousness that they did wrong. Now, there is such a thing as invincible ignorance. Right? there is such a thing as invincible ignorance but but the very fact that the penitent says i did this thing and it was wrong suggests that the that the that the that the ignorance was not invincible and and ultimately we can't really be the judge of that right we if, uh, if i come to understand that something i did was wrong then the, the safest course of action is to go to confession so i i think this was just grossly irresponsible on the part of the priest now uh, furthermore i think it's i think it's just I think there's a, a fundamental problem of moral theology here that the priest is missing. And that is, the Catholic faith has never taught that the only way we can know right from wrong is from special revelation. <clears throat> only f- by a word from Scripture or the magisterium can we know right from wrong. That is not true! That is not true! I mean, the, the explicit teaching of St. Paul in the book of Romans is that our moral duty is inscribed upon our nature and is accessible to reason, and for that reason, man is without excuse. Woman, too, for that matter. Right? Because there's such a thing as a natural law that's accessible to reason. Plato never heard of the Catholic faith. Aristotle never heard of the Catholic faith. It didn't stop them from writing magnificent ethical treatises. You know, you don't find pagans writing ethical treatises in favor of cowardice. You don't need a divine decree in sacred scripture, to know that cowardice is is despicable, but that's something that you can discern by natural reason. You don't need a decree from heaven to know that, say, you know, wanton immorality and and abandoning yourself to your passions, uh, like an animal, that that's debasing to human dignity. There's not a culture on the planet that, that 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 says this is fundamentally in your best interest although we're getting dangerously close to that in our culture, but we hadn't quite gone over the, over the cliff yet. You can know things about the moral life from reason. Everyone does, right? Um, children know it's not okay to lie. And so the priest's position is just, first of all, he's wrong about, uh, about uh, invincible ignorance, but he's even more wrong about the way conscience works. So, yeah, she, if, I were, if, if I were her, if I were she, I would find another priest and I would go to confession.
1: 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call. If maybe you're a non-Catholic and you have a question about a teaching of the Catholic faith, or if you're a long-time, lifelong Catholic and there's a certain teaching of our faith that you're not sure about, or a practice that you've witnessed that you couldn't quite understand, please give us a call. The number is 833-288-3986. It is a free telephone call. Anywhere in North America, 833 288 3986. You can also send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Dr. David Andrews sitting in for Father John Tregilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Dr. David Anders sitting in today for Father John Trujillo. If you've got a question, please give us a call at 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. Dr. Anders, Mary was on the line and apparently she couldn't hold through the break. But uh, it looks like the anniversary of her mother's passing is coming up, and she was wondering if we will recognize our loved ones in heaven.
2: I think we have every reason to suspect that we will, um, and, and for a few reasons. One, every time in sacred scripture that we see uh, souls from beyond that uh, make themselves known or are made known to those of us that are still living, they're always recognizable. So we have, no, we have no evidence to the contrary in sacred scripture. Uh, we know that in the resurrection of the body, we'll get our bodies back. And the pattern of the resurrection is the pattern of Christ's resurrection. And of course, Jesus was, with a few exceptions, recognizable when he was raised from the dead, except when he didn't want to be, like with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, so he was different, but still there was continuity. There was, you could recognize them. And, and third, I think that... The whole logic of the redemption is that God and the life of heaven and the redemption are not fundamentally disconnected from nature and the life of earth; that there is a profound continuity. That the world, as Saint Bonaventure said, is a ladder ascending to God. Um, you know, it's not just it's not just a road to nowhere from which Jesus rescues us, but there's actually a continuity between our historical, physical, embodied existence and and eternity. And, and grace is not something that destroys nature, but something that fulfills and completes it. And so it would, be, it would be really discontinuous with the whole logic of redemption if our condition in redemption were just utterly different from our life on earth. I think it's elevated, it's, it's, it's consummated, it's transformed, it's transfigured, but it's not, it's not totally different.
1: Joseph is in Vista, California, listening to EWTN Radio today on John Paul II Catholic Radio. Joseph, you're on with Dr. David Anders.
4: Oh, thank you. How are you today?
2: We're all right. Thanks. How about you?
4: Oh, good. Doctor, I just, uh, I wanted to ask you, during the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, Um. At the end, um, usually we sing the Save Regina and sometimes it won't get sung. And I just wanted to know, I'll sing it because I, I, I don't think we should one day sing it and another day not sing it in honor and in deference to Mary.
2: And um, I wanted to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, sure, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, Salve Regina is a beautiful hymn, and I think it's a great idea to sing it, and I think it's a great idea to sing it in the context of Eucharistic adoration. And so I advise people to do that. Um, However, the devotional life of the Church is something that is distinct from its liturgical life and the liturgical life of the church is something that is highly specified in church law and by divine revelation so we don't have any leeway when it comes to celebrating the mass and the sacraments but the church does give us more leeway we have some leeway actually i should i should take that back there's a little bit of leeway in the liturgy but not much Um, but when it comes to the devotions of the faithful there's an awful lot of freedom that's allowed and that's also a good thing. And so we, we have to—I'm I'm wary about saying that devotions must be performed in such and such a fashion always and everywhere and by all, because we really only say the about the things that have been handed to us by divine revelation. And as beautiful as they are, these Marian hymns— don't fall into the category of sacred liturgy. They're, they're devotional, they're part of the, the devotional life of the faithful, which is admirable and worthy and, and we should embrace it and benefit from it and learn it. Um, but, uh, but, but it's not the sort of thing we have to force universally upon all the Catholic faithful.
1: Thanks, Joseph. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986, still time for your phone calls. Uh, Anna's watching us on Facebook Live, and she says, I have a couple of questions. Can a priest marry a couple, one Catholic and one non-Catholic, but at a regular venue?
2: I assume that by a regular venue we mean not in a Catholic church,
1: which I would say is an irregular venue. An ir
2: that, that's that's a very good point. That'd be an irregular venue. So, uh, with a dispensation, but I would agree with you. I'm sure that's what she meant. I think that's <laughs> what she meant. With a dispensation from the bishop, the priest can can depart from canonical form. Canonical form means the form that is specified in canon law. The form that's specified in canon laws it should be in a church and performed by a priest or a deacon. All right. The bishop can dispense from canonical form for a serious reason. Um you know, if the reason is um, you know, my cousin Beth got married at this this you know, this this wedding venue that used to be a brewery and they turned it into a wedding venue and you know, but they still have the taps and they have an open bar and a great dance floor and uh, you know, they got a little crystal ball at the top and uh, you know, my my cousin also hired this DJ, and it would just be really neat. That's not a sufficient reason, That's, and you're probably not going dis- to get a dispensation for that. You know, a, a reason that you might get a dispensation from canonical form is sometimes in cases of mixed marriages, where you have one Catholic and one from another religious tradition, and the other spouse finds it very important to have a, a, a clergyman or woman from their own tradition present. Then you might, you know, have a situation where the bishop says, okay, as long as we have a Catholic priest there, you can have, say, the Catholic priest and the rabbi or the Catholic priest and the Protestant minister, and we'll we'll dispense some canonical form. But, but, um, but, uh, you know, if it's just a question of venue because, you know, you like the style, you're probably not going to get a dispensation from the bishop, in which case the marriage would not be valid. You don't get the dispensation, it's not going to be valid.
1: Still plenty of time for your calls. Wide open phone lines for you this Monday afternoon at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jorge is watching on YouTube, David, and he wants to know if he can be a Catholic with next to no Marian devotion.
2: Okay, so let's be really careful how we define our terms here. All right. It is possible to be a Catholic without some specific Marian devotion. In other words, no Catholic is bound to, say, pray the Rosary, okay, specifically. Um, But the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, well, I mean, she comes into the Mass, right? Remember at the Confidior? I asked Blessed Virgin Mary, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God, Right. So we're invoking her even in the context of Holy Mass. Now, you can't, you can't defect from Holy Mass and be a Catholic. Um, Mary comes into the dogmatic structure of the Catholic faith. And so uh, Pope Pius IX decreed that by the same degree of predestination <clears throat> by which God decreed the incarnation of the Son of God, that he also decreed the Immaculate Conception of this particular virgin— to be the mother of God. So it's not like, you know, God was looking around for an adequate container for the Son of God and said, let's, let's check out all these, uh, all these young girls from, from Nazareth and, you know, we'll, we'll hold a contest. And, oh, Mary went. No, it didn't work that way. He had predestined her from before the beginning of time, specifically to be the Immaculate Virgin Mother of God. That's a dogma of the faith. So she's, she's sort of built into the fabric of redemption from the ground up to be the second Eve. And so a Catholic confesses that they believe everything that the Holy Church declares to be revealed by God, and that's all the Marian dogmas. And, and that includes a recognition that she has a unique role in the redemption. And, you know, St. Paul says that we have to give honor to whom honor is due, justice to whom justice, custom to whom custom. And so it would, be, it would not be right in justice for us not to acknowledge the preeminent role that Mary has in the redemption of the human race. That does not have to give expression in some particular devotion. Um, but the Catholic could not be could not be uh, inert to that in their in their heart, in their consciousness. You know, so you, you which is to say that some form of devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is just and right and appropriate. And if a person willfully said, it's one thing if they were ignorant. they You know, they don't know any Marian prayers. Well, yeah, you could be a good Catholic and not know any Marian prayers. But if a person said, you know, I'm just going to dispense with the whole Virgin Mary business and just sort of put her aside and, and not really regard her at all, um, well, then you'd be violating the very words of Scripture that prophesy that all generations will call her blessed.
1: 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Ron is a first-time caller in the great state of Illinois listening on Covenant Radio. Ron, you're on with Dr. David Andrews.
3: It's a pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Andrews. Um, so sometimes when I go to Mass outside of my home parish, Sometimes I'm in situations that are not optimal for preparing myself interiorly for mass. I usually show up early, but a lot of times there are people, like, having conversations, uh, almost pretending that they're not, and not pretending. They are, you know, they're not not there. They're there for other reasons, more social or whatever it is. And a lot of things happen that, you know, one of the reasons I show up early is to help quiet myself interiorly so I can focus on the things that I need to. What do I do at the times where I can barely formulate prayers in my head or talk to God or, you know, hear myself think, much less, uh, you know, I have a hard enough time quieting myself. So what What I've heard about the squeaky boots, you know, I've listened to you for years. I enjoy, you know, uh, thought open line was an appropriate place to ask you this
2: question. yeah, I'm sure, I really appreciate it, and i'm I'm deeply sympathetic to the question. Um, so clearly, different parishes have different cultures and and you know some have a greater sensitivity, you know to one virtue or another. and we can we can talk all day long about you know what's the proper disposition to have you know for a congregation and this kind of thing. and I don't want to get into all that. What is more interesting to me is what happens when I show up someplace that's different from what I'm used to, and I find it grating on me. And I think you've already sort of intuited my response about the squeaky boots, because this is something that Therese of Lisieux talks about in her little way, right? She talks about these kinds of temptations that emerge in the monastery or the convent when um, you know it's not some grand thing here that God is asking of me to go, you know, you know, climb Mount Everest or something, or surrender my body to the flames he's just asking me to put up with a with a you know an annoying nun with squeaky boots and and so in that instance i think what providence is telling you is the proper preparation for mass is training yourself not to pass judgment or be angry at your brothers That is the thing that you need to do to prepare for Mass in that instant, because that is the task that Providence has set you to in that moment. You know, um, this is a terrible analogy because it's not about sacred space at all. But um, uh, I've always had a hard time with noises. I can't sleep at night if it's not quiet. I can't sleep at night if there's light on. Um, I was a really bad dormitory inhabitant in college, right? And I remember once when I was at Wheaton College in Illinois, I was trying to do homework, and there was a, you know, my neighbor was playing music, and it was coming through the walls, and it was just making me, I, I sat, there, I just got madder and madder and madder and madder and matter, and I finally went over, and I bounded on his door, and he opened a door, and I just, I just, just tore into him about his loud music that was disturbing my studying, and he looked at me like I had two heads and just shut the door, and I walked away, and after about 30 seconds, I realized, that's his room, This is his dorm. He's allowed to listen to music. I'm too touchy. And I went back over and I said, man, I'm sorry. I apologize. And when I was getting ready to take the GRE, the graduate record exam, I thought, I'm never going to be able to do this because I'm going to get into the exam room and some kid's going to be chewing gum three rows back. And some other kid's going to be tapping his pencil and somebody else is going to be tapping his foot. And I'm going to go crazy. And so I said, I've got to deal with this or I'm never going to pass the test. And so I I went into the Trinity Divinity School library, which was terribly noisy. People always hacking and coughing and tapping their pens and carrying on. And I made myself take practice GRE tests for like six weeks with as much noise and distraction around me as possible. And darn it if I didn't get better at it, you know? Now I've since lost the ability and I'm still highly annoyable, right? So I'm sympathetic. But I really do think the challenge in that moment is like, it's not gonna do you a hill of beans good to sit there fuming, and you're not going to change the parish culture. So how can I become patient, you know, with my annoying neighbor? That really is the challenge that God has put to you at that moment.
1: 833 288 EWTN's our toll-free number. Next up is Dennis in Dayton, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Dennis, you're on with Dr. David Andrews.
4: Thank you. Uh, my wife and I came into the Catholic Church a year ago. We formerly were Lutheran. And I heard you on this program a, a week ago talking about how Luther didn't really have too much of an issue with the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, but what he had an issue with terribly was the idea of the Mass as a sacrifice. And i wondered if you could explain what was really at the core of Luther's thinking of why that caused him so much trouble. Oh, yeah. And one last thing, real quick, is... That is, that's a very uh, deep area of thinking that for a former Lutheran, it really takes some energy to understand the Catholic you know, understanding of the uh, Mass as a sacrifice.
2: Sure, sure. So Luther was very clear about his objections. There's no mystery at all why Luther despised the sacrifice of the Mass, because it's a work. He hated the Mass because it's a work. It's something that we offer to God that God regards with favor. The Mass, this is the teaching of the Catholic faith, the Mass propitiates God. And so Luther said, there's nothing we can do to propitiate God. There's nothing we do to curry favor with God. There's nothing we can do that can merit with God. And the sacrifice of the Mass contradicts all of that. Yes, we can propitiate God. Yes, we can curry favor with God. Yes, we can acquire merit with God. And and, and no place do we do that more... The the preeminent place where we do that is in the sacrifice of the Mass. So unambiguously, Luther's objection to the Mass was that it was a work, something that we do for God that that gains us recompense, and Luther's position was that you're saved by faith alone, and there's absolutely zip that you can do that wins any kind of favor or recognition from God. In another context, in his commentary on the Galatians, Luther once said, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. I mean, that's how strongly Luther took the idea of this justification by faith alone. Now, in terms of what is, the, what is the sacrifice of the Mass, in what manner is it a sacrifice, this, quite frankly, is something that most Catholics don't understand, even those that think they do. All right? And, and the teaching of the Church is extremely plain. In the language of the Mass itself, when you go on Sunday, the priest says, this is the memorial of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the memorial of his death and resurrection. It memorializes what happened on Calvary. And it contains the same victim that was offered on Calvary. And so think about that. The Jesus who gave himself on the cross is also present to us in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mounts through transubstantiation. So the priest literally is offering the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus to God. But he's doing it in an unbloody manner. Jesus is not killed. He's not immolated. He's not cut or bleeding, he's not dying, he's glorified whole and entire, so it's an offering of an unbloody victim in a manner that memorializes Calvary. That is the explicit teaching of the Council of Trent and of Pius XII and the Encyclical Mediator Dei. It's also the teaching of St. Thomas. So that's the way it works. And the objection that many Protestants have is, well, you're just sacrificing Jesus all over again. That's, That's modern Protestants will often say that, and we say, yeah, but in an unbloody manner, not in a bloody manner. And in doing this, we're also, we're also teaching ourselves. The sacraments teach what it is to live a Christian mode of life. St. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so we join together with the high priest Jesus, who's offering his own body in an unbloody manner, ritualizing and memorializing for us, the very act of self-sacrifice that defines our identity as Christians. And so Luther's critique is accurate in this respect. Yes, the Mass is a work. Yes, we're offering something to God. First, the body and blood of Christ, but also ourselves. And yes, we believe that act is meritorious and can curry favor with God and propitiate him. We believe all that. But Luther was wrong to reject it.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833 833- 288-3986 I want to encourage you to check out Mother Angelica Live Classics Tuesday nights 8pm Eastern Time this week Mother mentions the martyrs and from Christians in the Colosseum to the martyred death of various popes uh, she points out that these Christians did not die for a memory but for a living God Jesus himself that's Mother Angelica Live Classics Tuesdays 8pm Eastern Time right here on EWTN radio and television Mario's watching on YouTube, and he says, How do I tell a Protestant about the Holy Trinity? Well, I think for most mainline Protestants, that wouldn't be much of a lift.
2: Most mainline Protestants confess the doctrine of the Trinity. The only ones that don't are oneness Pentecostals. And um, so it really depends on where they're coming from. Now, to someone who doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ— the issue in the Trinity, of course, is to convince them of his divinity, and, we, and we, we, we believe that our knowledge of this is important because our union with Christ is actually union with God. If, if Christ is a mere creature, then Jesus doesn't unite us to God, he just unites us to a creature, so it's important that we confess his divinity. However, his, his, his separate personhood from the Father is also tremendously important. Right? That, uh, and see, this is where the Oneness Pentecostals go wrong. They, they believe that there is one God... But that he just has, you know, three masks, as it were, father, son, and spirit roles that he plays. The old, the old fallacious analogy of the Trinity being like water, steam, and ice, which is entirely wrong, um, is uh, is uh, is modalistic or Sabellian. That's what the oneness Pentecostals hold. The problem there is it makes the personality of Jesus a kind of dissimulation. It's a lie. It's a fake, because Jesus presents himself in dialogue with the Father. But if the Father and the Son are the same person, then, then Jesus is just putting on a show. He's not really—he's just talking to himself and making it look like he's talking to another person. And why that's a problem for us is that in becoming members of Christ, we actually enter into the Son's sonship. His, his filial identity and relationship to the Father is what we share in. And so if, if in knowing Christ we don't know, we don't know the Son, we might, if we know God but not the Son— then we're not able to actually stand within his filial relationship as sons. So there's a, there is a soteriological, that is to say, a, 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 a salvation-related significance to the doctrine of the Trinity. It gives us union with God, but it also gives us the position of filiation or sonship. And the Trinity reveals something to us about the deep structure of reality, namely communitarian love is not just morally but metaphysically the ultimate principle in all of reality.
1: Um, Marie in the Midwest called in and she uh, she wants to know if the church has anything to say about whether she can go to her niece's uh, alleged wedding to another woman. And she said she's torn, she's, she's a wonderful niece, but uh, it may be really confusing for my children. Sure, sure, sure.
2: So the, the church, you're never going to find in a church document this specific statement you should not change lanes at 100 miles an hour on the interstate while drunk, right? Um, But the fact that the Church hasn't said that specifically in an official document doesn't mean you can't form a firm moral judgment about that. You know it's wrong to change lanes at 100 miles an hour on the interstate while drunk. You shouldn't be doing that. And in the same way, I'm not aware of a particular document from the Holy See, but we have the principles to answer this with certainty, and you've already laid them out for yourself, and that is the scandal of the children right? Because this is not a wedding. This is an act against justice. It is against justice. Justice is giving someone what they are due, and this kind of commitment is not due to one another in that kind of relationship. And it, 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 it's a gross violation of the nature of the Marriage Act as such, and in particular, the relationship of parent to child. And so the risk of scandal to your own children is astronomically high.
1: Irene's watching us on YouTube and wants to know, if someone dies still denying salvation through Christ, are they given one more chance on the other side?
2: Um, they are not given one more chance on the other side. They are not given one more chance on the other side. However, we are really not in a position to to judge the condition that you just laid out, right? Um, so I, I, I really don't know another man's conscience. I really don't. Only God is the judge of consciences. And so... We presume a hopeful attitude towards the salvation of all and know that God wants all to be saved. And, uh, and I'm not going to form the judgment, I know that guy's in hell. Because I don't know that. I don't know that. And, uh, and God wants all to be saved and offers sufficient grace to everyone.
1: Todd wants to know, why do Catholics wear and use metals and use holy water?
2: Sacramental. Um, so a sacramental is a kind of sacred sign that has been blessed by a priest, and, you know, a blessing by a priest is kind of like, it's sort of like a permanent prayer. It's, uh, it's the priest asking God that on the occasion of the use of this item, may this devotionalist be, be sort of brought into the intercessory power of the church. And having that confidence, that reminder of God and, and the intercession of the church and that relationship should prompt one to acts of faith, hope, and charity. So that's why. If it's for some other reason, you know, like it's treated like a magic charm or a talisman, that'd be superstitious. But if it's used with the proper disposition, it really can move one in faith, hope, and charity.
1: On behalf of our host, Dr. David Andrews, sitting in today for Father John Trigilio, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media Maven Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for helping us kick off another great week. VWTN's Open Line back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes. Until we get together then. God bless.